the bank is foreclosing on the Christmas tree farm. What? In a city of 19 million people, this tree found me. My tree found me. This tree brought me home for a reason. You still have feelings for it. You broke up with me. No, as I remember, you broke up with me. Lacey Chabert stars in the Up original movie, The Tree That Saved Christmas. Only on Up. We're everything you love about Christmas. Welcome back to another round of Stocking Stuffers. On today's You Heard It, we are going switching up networks, trying something different with Up, the Up Network. For those who don't know, it's like sort of a Christian one, but I don't know if it's officially Christian. The movie today isn't really Christian, but Lacey Trebert is in it, so it kind of is. Anyway, 2014's The Tree That Saved Christmas. The Tree That Saved Christmas. Christmas would not have happened without this tree. Now, in the scheme of things, 2014 is not that long ago. Uh, we can look at the world and say, boy, 2014 felt a lot different than it does today. But it shouldn't be in terms of just television entertainment. However, you know, 2014 was kind of like rusty early days of the real Hallmark Cozy Cardigan formula. So this one is a little rough around the edges in some ways. And again, it's also not Hallmark. It's up, which are usually cheaper, more cheaply made, which makes me very happy because they're more entertaining for it. Uh, so all these things, we get to see the evolution of the stocking stuffer. Uh, Lacey Chabert, as we know, is one of the sort of, I always say there's like a, a court of ladies that are, are are chosen for these movies and they're sort of I think as much as I hate her I think Candace Cameron Bure is sort of the queen who gets her pick of of the best one and they seem to for whatever reason give her the big budget and let her host the Hallmark round um, but Lacey Chabert every year does these movies and it kind of makes sense because she is such a kind of you know little chirpy cheerful can't really doesn't have much drama to her so in a way, she's the perfect person to cast in these kinds of movies. There is always a way to make her into some kind of, um, like, little elfin Christmas sprite type thing. And something right off the bat that does usually happen with her is she rarely is the one that needs to learn the lesson. She is more the... Uh, you know, kind of happy spirit of Christmas that is teaching others. But we're going to jump into all this. Um, the first thing I want to say about The Tree That Saved Christmas is that it poses uh, a really, really important question. Um, we'll get to the details of the plot, but they do involve, all, you know, tearing down a family business in Vermont. And a reporter asks, is this the death of Christmas in small town America? Which is a heavier question than normally posited in these kinds of movies. So just so that you're, you know, ready to deal with what we're about to deal with. Uh, this movie is directed by David Winning, who has done a lot of these kinds of movies, several, like handfuls of which I've covered on this show. Um, other things of interest to me is that he directed a lot of episodes of the Sweet Valley High TV series that aired in the 90s. And I know some of you if you're like me, enjoyed that. Uh, he also directed um, a couple of episodes of Friday the 13th, the series, which means, yes, indeed, uh, Canadian. And his probably, like, biggest profile, I guess, project was 1998's TV miniseries Merlin, which I remember enjoying quite a bit, uh, <laughs> more than the tree that saved Christmas. So let's talk about this movie and the plot. 
Uh, Molly is a wannabe writer working in the big city. We're going to get to what that big city is in a moment. It was hilarious. Um, and she grew up in Vermont uh, on a Christmas tree farm where her parents, it was a family business. Dad inherited it from his dad, from his dad, and so on. And she left Vermont to, you know, try to make it as a writer in, in the big bad city. And she is uh, planning on coming home for Christmas and she has to rush home for Christmas because she finds out that the farm is going to be foreclosed on. That years ago, mom and dad took out a second mortgage and they haven't been able to pay it back. So the tree farm is going to get bought by her ex-boyfriend's father, who is the banker, evil banker, I guess, evil banker investment guy. Everybody's jobs in this movie are really confusing. So she comes home to try to find some kind of plan. Her and her brother have all these, you know, crazy things, or maybe they can declare the land a historical landmark or something. Uh, instead, what happens is her boss, she works for a publisher. In the beginning, it seemed like he was a famous novelist, but then at a certain point, he starts talking about business skills. So either his job changed halfway through, or I wasn't paying close attention. So he, he is a... Uh, Anyway, so he runs a publishing house, so he's really wealthy and only travels in a limo driven by someone else, and Molly has sort of become like a nanny to his daughters and his assistant. It's very confusing what her job title is. And so his daughters force him to come to the farm, and when he does, he sees how great Molly is and how happy it's making his daughters. And it gets very confusing because it seems like there's supposed to be a romance there, but then he also says to her he'd be proud of her if she was his daughter. So there's some weird Oedipal stuff going on. Uh, in the end, he just basically decides to uh, pay for the farm to take up the loan and become the guarantor to her parents. So it's not like they have this big, um, you know, like dance-a-thon to save the Christmas tree farm. It, there, I mean, there are moments where you think that's going to go that way but it's much much less exciting than that instead it's just this guy that's a connection to her who has a big checkbook writes a check and everything's okay in the end and she gets back together with her ex-boyfriend who briefly is an evil banker but then sees the error of his ways and instead goes back to his love of photography that's the kind of movie we're working with here today folks so let's run through the list and see what we get number one our lead in need of a lesson and I thought this was going to go that route because we open on Molly in the city and she has given up a little bit of her hometown life and her dreams and all that. But very quickly, she, as soon as her family is in trouble, there is no question to her of her job, her family, her job, her family. She goes right back to her family to try to fix things. And of course she does because this is an up movie. Uh, so it's more her teaching the lesson to others, I guess, which honestly are a little less fun. I like a movie that, um, you know, creates a very unrealistic portrait of a career woman and then tears it apart. This one doesn't do that. It just creates a lot of weird portraits of things and then spills paint on them, if you will. So we'll move on to our setting and we do open in the big bad city. And when it opens, you know, she is uh, earlier in the movie, she had talked to, there's, the, it opens, there's a couple of flashbacks to her being a kid. And she talks about being, when she was a kid, she wanted to go to New York and she was going to write stories about New York and her best friend, who of course is her, her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend now, he was going to take pictures of skyscrapers. And that was their dream. 
so when the movie opens and she is in a city, I think to myself, they're not even trying to make this in New York, right? Because there is no such thing as a hallway that big or a street that clean in New York. And no, no, they are in New York and it is a very Canadian New York. Uh, again, we don't stay there long because Molly has to get to Vermont and it is a very warm Vermont. I must say my understanding of Vermont is that in winter it gets pretty cold. Uh, in this case, it gets, you know, I guess it looks like maybe like high 50s based on the fact that character characters can stand in a forest with a sort of like fall jacket and no gloves or hat and seem to be perfectly fine. So that is the world of Vermont. Uh, the setting of this movie is beautiful because as much as Hallmark goes cheap, Up, go, Up really doesn't spend money on details at all. So all of the actual sets, uh, aside from the house where they're filming, the, the lodge, which I'm guessing was a real place, probably like a hotel in the off-season, because it probably is like ski country and they couldn't actually, you know, don't have visitors and ski time out of that cold weather. So they're able to film this movie for three days. Uh, but the other part of this is the banking office. So, you know, evil banking office where evil business deals are made is the saddest, not even attempt at a a real high-powered office we get to see the the boyfriend or not boyfriends. Um, I think his name is Lucas. Like he has a desk, and behind him are just um, blueprints of things thumbtacked to the wall. And it's not so noticeable until you start looking at it and you realize blueprints would never be printed on eight and a half by ten paper. But obviously, they just printed whatever they could in whatever little side office of a trailer that they were using. So it's just very claustrophobic and ugly. This is not a pretty movie. And, you know, I mean, again, I don't know what you come here for, but if you come here for at least, like, I don't know, nice houses or offices that look as if somebody might possibly get anything done in them, you don't get it here. Number three, our bland love interest. We do get one, but the reverse of, you know, usually the bland love interest is the guy that brings out Christmas spirit in our lead. And he is usually brimming, brimming, brimming with it. And also, you know, is in touch with nature and woodworking and all of that. In this case, it's not. It's the reverse. Molly has to kind of pull that back out of Lucas. So it's more the poor little rich boy alternate, in a way. Poor little rich boy uh, is the other trope commonly used here, where our romantic lead has been kind of beaten down by the world or, you know, feels like he has to live up to his father's expectations, which is always always the case here, and is indeed the case here. And that is Lucas. Uh, actor you've probably seen in a lot of things, including a lot of these movies. Now, moving on to the montage number four, where um, not as many as I would have liked, quite frankly, but there is a bit of a decorating a gingerbread house montage and then the end of the movie. So I kind of went through a little bit of it, but didn't get through the, the heart of it, which is that not only does her boss buy the farm or give money to her parents, it's all whatever kind of odd arrangement they've worked out. Uh, he also, because his daughters find her journal from when she was like 13 and he reads it, should they read it to him? They tell him to read it. And the stories are so good that he decides to sign her as a short story writer for his major publication company. As you do, uh, I'm pretty sure that's how Joyce Carol Oates got her start, I guess. So the end of the movie is kind of, I guess, like a one year later thing. And it is a montage of her reading her story out loud to what looks like a library of children. 
and as she does there's sort of flashes of the movie of flashbacks of the Vermont winter sun setting over the very warm trees and so there's a montage it's not really musical per se but it's there and that I think is what her career turns out to be so we move on now to number five which of course is really my favorite the dead parents or dead wife trope and we we yeah we get it don't worry so Lucas's mom has walked out on the family some 10 years earlier so that's you know another part to it but more importantly uh her Molly's boss the publisher or novelist whatever uh, his wife died about a year or two ago and it is very much a thing in this movie it's a weird thing and I'm going to get to that when we get to the kids um but dead wife totally a part of the movie number six our sassy sidekick a little bit disappointed because we open the movie and of course as is often the case the only character of color is uh is a sidekick it is molly's co-worker who happens to be a black woman and happens to have earrings as she does uh and kind of gets to like joke with her a little bit about how hard the office is but then we never see her again as we don't see anybody who is not white again uh i guess molly's brother is a little bit of a sassy sidekick because he will make what i think are jokes so i guess that counts if you wish uh, but number seven, evil woman. No evil women in this movie, but we get a lot of evil men. Uh, so Lucas's dad, who is just evil banker, evil banker, who doesn't even get redeemed. Usually, like, no evil character in these movies. I mean, sometimes, well, unless it's, okay, no evil male characters usually have to, like, pay the price in the end. Typically, they see the light somehow, but this guy doesn't. We don't know what happens to him, but we know he's not going to be happy. Uh but really, it's her, her boss, Walter, who is introduced as um, being a very uncaring man who, you know, of course, lords around his uh, subjects, his, his the people that are working under him, and doesn't know anything about his daughters. And this is where things get really weird, because he has these two daughters who, to my eyes, look to be about 14 years old. But he talks about them and treats them as if they were like four or five. And it's this is always a problem in film, and I understand it, but I think but I understand the problem of it, but not that nobody's found a solution, which is look, you don't want to cast actors too young because they're harder to work with. But if you just present in the movie this child who's clearly older as if they're younger, you end up just thinking something is wrong with this child. Uh, the Shining miniseries makes this mistake, where the actor is probably about eight, and he's supposed to play a kid of, like, four who can't read, but this kid obviously can read, and it just makes you think, is something wrong with this kid? And that's the case here. His daughters are teenagers. There's no question about that. But he, Walter says things like, I don't even know what their bedtime is or what stories to read them. Maybe you don't read them stories because they're teenagers and don't want their dad reading them, you know, Charlotte's Web before they go to bed. So I guess the point is that Walter is out of touch. You know, he cares about business, business, business. Um, he just talks a lot about closing deals, even though, again, I thought he was a novelist. Uh but everything changes when he realizes how great Molly is. And it's weird. Are, is there a romance brewing there? The movie seems to want to do it, but then it doesn't make sense. It's, it's just an awkward one. This one doesn't like have that same flow. And on one hand, you know exactly where it's going because you've seen these movies before. 
on the other, you, you're kind of almost surprised at how they get there because it seems like there's too many things happening that shouldn't happen or that should happen differently. It's messy. So number eight, uh, slapstick. We get, you know, when we're introduced to Molly, just, and this is a trick these movies pull, which is to try to make these very beautiful women a little more relatable. So Molly, who, you know, is, of course, is a poor assistant in New York City, but pretty well-dressed, but you know what? She goes out to lunch, and what does she do? A bird poops on her, and then what? She spills her coffee on her work, like you do. She's not clumsy throughout the rest of the movie. It's just used in the beginning, almost as if they watched this movie, and the editor or director said, you know, I feel like um, Molly's a little bit, you know, a little bit too pretty. I don't think we're going to reach middle America with this character. What are we going to do about that? Look, we got to flaw her a little bit. Oh, I know. Let's have her be clumsy. It's the old Bella Swan thing. If, if a character fake falls, suddenly you understand her and it's done poorly here. Number nine, our sage old person. Um, oh God. Yes, we do. So, um, Molly's parents aren't dead. Unfortunately, they're very much alive. And her mother is just, how do I say it? Her mother really thinks that she is a sage old person. Now, I'm not saying old. She's not really old. She's probably in her, you know, 50s oldest. But this woman just, it's like she wakes up every morning and thinks, how can I say something that can be uh, scored to sappy instrumental music as I say it, and then somebody at home will nod. That's, That's my goal in life today. So, um, you know, she says things like, uh, you know, family is a state of mind. And, you know, the, the main, that's the big lament, lament of parents. You want your children to fly, but you also want them to have a parachute. And this is all doled out as if it's like deep wisdom. And she ends up having this very strong relationship with Walter, her daughter's boss. And at one point you start to think like, just do it already. Like you two clearly have something going on because he keeps coming back. I don't know where he's staying, but you know, he lives in New York City. He keeps getting in his limo and driving back to the farm. There's like 12 establishing shots of his limo pulling up to the farm. And at some point it's gotta be to get some of the mom, right? Something's going on there. Uh, Number 10 is Santa Claus. And unfortunately, no Santa Claus. Where's Santa Claus? not in the tree that saved Christmas. You know what else is not in the tree that saved Christmas? And this is shocking because since I have added this bonus to the list, every single movie has hit it. Every single movie I've ever covered has used a public domain holiday song, usually multiples. And this movie doesn't. It is called The Tree That Saved Christmas, and the song Oh Christmas Tree is public domain, which is why you hear it in every one of these movies. But you don't hear it in The Tree That Saved Christmas. What the fuck is going on? Was Up uh, or director David Winning like, you know what? I I see what you've given me. Like maybe the Up Network is like, oh, by the way, here's all this stock footage. Here's all of our, you know, the, the musical bank you can pull from. Was this guy like, no, I'm bringing in my own people to score this movie and we're gonna score it the way I see it. It is genuinely shocking that there are no standard holiday songs. There is uh, quite a lot of instrumental music in the most obnoxious of ways. Uh, It is very imposing. Uh, It's a lot of ominous instrumental. It's a lot of inspiring instrumental. And there is so much of it. But none of it even like goes into a little jingle bell. None of it does. Very strange. 
But the next in the bonus round, uh, product placement, again, none that I caught. For Up, you know, they're, they're not quite indebted because I think they're probably like collecting money from some Christian group somewhere. Uh, the Cloying Child, we do, as I said, you have these two girls who are obviously not babies, but the movie treats them as such. And there's a great moment where these two girls who have grown up in Manhattan come to Vermont and they get out of the car and they're all excited because they've apparently never seen nature before. And the first thing they do is they freak out because they're like, oh my God, is that a horse? Bitches live on the Upper West Side. They've never seen a Central Park horse. I think they have. It's very strange. Again, this movie doesn't understand children. It really doesn't. And you know how I know? Because it doesn't get that what all kids love aside from public domain holiday music and obviously horses, ice skating. Everybody wants ice skating in their Christmas movie and the tree that saved Christmas doesn't give it to us. I'm getting mad at it. I shouldn't be because you have to understand 2014, which is actually the year I started stocking stuffers. Um, you know, the formula was still being honed a bit. And this is just an early case where it didn't have it all lined up quite as well as it should have. Uh, Canadianisms, this movie was filmed in Canada. You can occasionally see it. I didn't pull anything specific other than it's just not the U.S. We're not looking at New York City. This does not look like Vermont. Um, it's just not what it should be, if you will. Uh, characters with a Christmas name, I, we have Molly, not Holly. So no, again, a little unfortunate. But we do get Christmas tree lightings. We get like a lot of them because this is a movie set on a Christmas tree farm. Uh, and the first one is an actual like you know, she brings in the press for the big Christmas tree lighting to help save the farm. And all she really does is like put on a couple of like white twinkle lights on trees. And when they turn it on, everybody is more excited than these 14 year old girls from Central Park who've never seen a horse before. So we do get them. Oh, and immediately after we're told that the Christmas tree lighting went viral. And I don't think this movie knows what that word means. Uh, that's that's the rundown of all the things in this movie. As far as I recommend, it was entertain. This is one that you have to watch and actively engage with to mock, because it's not it's not as good. Like Hallmark, at least they look good. Um, everybody's sweaters are pretty. Like even like you know their winter coats are nice. In this one, nobody even looks that good. They keep filming in a uh, like the one local place that they keep going back to is a diner, and I say diner with a lot of generosity because it's really just one table that the camera has one angle at, and it's probably the same room where you know they just wheel that table out, and that's where. Lucas's office is in the next scene but this is just a supposed to be like a barbecue diner where there's a saucy waitress but the best part of this uh, and I actually put the picture of it on Facebook in our Facebook group at the Feminine Critique at one point uh, Lacey Chabert is having you know french fries with I think it's with the boyfriend not boyfriend and behind her you could see a chalkboard of a menu as if it's a barbecue joint and one of the items on the menu that very prominently sticks out is a smoked threesome or a smoking threesome. It, it's apparently just like chicken, pork, and uh, what other, other barbecue meat, beef or something. But it's just very prominent. And I feel like somebody in the props department had fun. So good for them because that's what we needed a little more of in this movie. Uh, it, I don't know where this, it, 
this could be airing on cable at some point this year. I don't know. It could be on Hulu for all I know. I watched this because I recorded it uh, on my DVR about two years ago, I think, because I saw the title and thought, oh, geez, this has got to be a good one. It's, again, it's not really. It, it's a it's a terrible movie, but it's bad enough that it was, it was an entertaining one to do. I'm going to leave you with the Amazon review in this case. You know, I've been trying to do IMDb reviews. It, uh, oddly enough, for this movie, there just were only about five IMDb reviews, which was highly disappointing, and none of them were that exciting. So I just decided to take a check on Amazon, and I found a five-star review uh, by a verified purchaser. So that tells you something. And their review, the title of the review is, I recommend you watch this with a significant other or alone. I'm going to read that title again, because now that I've read it, I am vastly confused about this person and their motives. I recommend you watch this with a significant other or alone. So either watch this with your romantic partner or watch it by yourself. Do not watch it with your mother. Do not watch it with your brother or your cat uh, or your cousin, unless these people are your significant other, I guess, is what this person is trying to say. Uh, They go on to write, this movie really harvested it. Oh, no, and I'm reading this correctly. These typos are not mine. This movie really harvested in the spirit of the holiday. I don't think that's how you use that word. The soundtrack alone resonated with my soul. The storyline was a roller coaster with layers of unexpected surprises and outcomes. I think that this movie should be recategorized under more than Christmas because it is an American classic. Filmed in Canada. Amazon should offer more options than T-H-E-N, five star to express how I felt about this movie. I recommend you watch this with a significant other or alone and start your own tradition. I don't think this person has ever seen a movie before. I don't think this person has ever left the basement that they've been locked in for like the 16 years of their life before. It's very sad. Um, I, I'm just imagining how much this person's mind is going to be blown when they actually like go up a step and watch a Hallmark movie and realize, whoa, this world is filled with possibilities. On that note, you know what? Be like anonymous Amazon customer who made a verified purchase of a movie that harvested in the spirit of the holiday and just embrace the spirit of the holiday. And whether in this case that means um, your joy at seeing your first horse at the age of, of 17, whatever it may be. Cheers. I'm a Christmas tree, I'm a Christmas tree, everybody hangs their ornaments on me, I'm a Christmas tree, I'm a Christmas tree, people throw me out on New Year's Eve, oh Santa Claus, oh Santa Claus. He breaks lots of laws. He trespasses. He breaks and enters. He travels all around the world without a valid passport. I'm a Hanukkah bush. Hanukkah bush. I got a. I'm a Hanukkah bush. I've got. I mean, I'm a lot like. 
a Jewish Christmas tree. Woo! But I'm not. <laughs>